Salt and Straw isn't often in the news for non-ice cream related reasons, but when an RV exploded out front of the Funky Dessert Company's headquarters in Southeast Portland, it sparked something else. A broader discussion about property crime. I'm Andrew Thien and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, public safety reporters Catalina Gaitan and Savannah Edens. We talked about salt and straw, what types of property crimes have increased in recent years, what police are and aren't doing about it, the broader issues that continue to ripple across the Rose City, and why so many people are furious. Here's our conversation. Catalina Gaitan, Savannah Edens, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Ditto. Kata, let's start with you. Uh, you two, you and your teammates on the public safety team have covered two consecutive years now of record number of homicides. But there's been another story that's kind of rising a little bit into the forefront lately, and that's kind of property crime. And several high-profile businesses are sounding the alarm. I know that you and your team and other parts of the newsroom were reporting on this last week. Uh, What did you all learn when you were talking to businesses and people in the city? Over the last few weeks, there have been several incidents of pretty destructive and visible break-ins in Portland. Uh, Over one weekend in November, two cannabis dispensaries in Southeast Portland were driven into, as in cars driving through the front of their buildings and stolen from. So for the employees at those dispensaries, they had pretty much just enough time to put plywood over their broken doors and windows before it happened again. And then last week, a similar thing happened to the REI store in downtown Portland a car backed into the front glass doors and the store was broken into. And it turned out that was the store's third break-in in a week. And these sort of dramatic break-ins happened to coincide with the news that a couple of business owners in the city's central east side either were closing their store due to increased levels of crime in Portland, or in the case of the iconic Portland ice cream chain, Salt and Straw, considering moving out of the city for the same reason. Yeah, so obviously when Salt and Straw, I guess, becomes involved, it takes, uh, you know, there's going to be headlines from every news outlet in town, I guess. And so here we are. Um, but you took a look at how this trend, I guess, or just the situation on the ground compares to pre-pandemic levels in terms of the data that Portland police have available. What, what did you find? I took a look at data from the Portland Police Bureau to see if burglaries reported in Portland have been going up, and they have. Since 2019, the number of reported burglaries, robberies, vehicle thefts, and incidents of vandalism have all gone up during the first 10 months of the year. And they aren't the highest they've ever been on record, but they have been trending upwards since before the pandemic. Okay. And Savannah, I know you uh, and I talked previously about catalytic converter theft, um, and you had a really interesting package earlier this year on that front, but you've also been reporting on crimes of opportunity or whatever you want to call it in the city. Um, What's happened to these cases? Is anyone being held responsible? Um, I know you looked into this a bit. For sure. We saw a huge uh, potential bust out of Washington County a few months ago, a case which will be pretty fascinating to follow and and might uh, provide some answers and accountability to a lot of people who have become victims of catalytic converter theft. Um, Two uh, men from the suburbs, Brennan Doyle and Tanner Hellbush, are accused of running 
an elaborate crime ring, raking in millions of dollars in catalytic converters and um, having like over a dozen associates kind of doing the dirty work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beaverton police, who are leading this massive investigation for some reason, rather than the feds, which is kind of interesting, um, say that they believe a lot of the catalytic converters this group was stealing came from the local area, but they also say it spanned across several Western U.S. states and and is even being tied to uh, some recycling out on the East Coast and, and international shipment because you know, as we've reported previously, the money from the converters is comes from the um, precious metals on the inside. So you have to get them to a refinery somehow to really uh, make the money. But in Multnomah County, I we haven't really seen a case to such a scale, at least not yet. Um, now, when it comes to car theft, we are seeing the district attorney's office being relatively aggressive in prosecuting repeat car thieves, even as they have an enormous backlog of cases. Um, and in a few recent examples, uh, a 25-year-old Portland man was sentenced to five years in prison after he pled guilty to seven charges from multiple incidents between 2020 and 2022 related to car theft and being a felon with a gun. A couple of weeks ago, another guy got five years in prison for unlawful possession of, of six cars between 2021 and 2022. So they are cracking down, but there are a lot of challenges with prosecuting something like car theft. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a, f- a few examples. Yeah, like what? <laughs> Go for it. So even though there's been changes in the law that was supposed to make it easier to bring evidence in car theft cases, for example, burden of proof, including the person being found in a car also being in possession of like a theft device, um, a a law change made it so that prosecutors could connect that and use that um, as evidence. Um, Because for so many years, people would get caught in a car and say, oh, I was borrowing it from a friend. And it was really difficult to fight that in court. And then there's what the police bureau keeps saying, which is that it doesn't have enough resources to investigate all of this property crime. And to be fair, if a car is a stolen car, like a car that's been reported stolen is found unoccupied and recovered on the other side of town, how on earth could they find, you know, or have the time to find the person who stole it? So there's that. But we're also seeing so much of a revolving door with property crime that's intersected with so many other issues that the city is facing um, and the and the people are struggling with. So people are coming in and out of the criminal justice system, repeating some of the same behaviors, and many of which when we dig into court records appear to be struggling with mental health or untreated addiction and have been largely failed by the social service systems in place when it comes to getting help or being referred housing, for example. I mean, some of these people who have been accused of car theft have said that they needed a place to be stay warm, things like that. Um, the other problem, uh, a, a top like deputy district attorney who, who is kind of leading the prosecution of these property crimes, mm-hmm. Kevin uh, Deemer, he's explained to me that even when a property crime case seems pretty viable, meaning it's been well investigated, it has all the information it needs for a good prosecution, victims of those crimes aren't showing up to court to testify, which means they have to throw it away sometimes. 
and that's for a myriad reasons. Many victims are already people in lower like socioeconomic circumstances. Maybe they can't get out of work or there's confusion on dealing with the system. Not to mention some of these cases we're seeing come to fruition are old, like going back to 2019 because of the backlog. Um, and then there's also the issue that s- some of the cases the DA's office say could be good, <laughs> but they require follow-up and more investigation from police, which isn't happening at the rate that they need it. Savannah, what do police say is driving this rise, if, if anything, when you talk to them? Police don't really or can't really give much of an insight into why people commit crimes or why this is happening. Um, I think that the law enforcement, um, as like the Portland Police Association perspective, um, has largely been that uh, kind of narrative that the police bureau is underfunded or understaffed, which while it is at lower staffing levels than it's seen in a long time, it is not underfunded and it's not defunded. And we've reported on that many times. Um, But some people say that people in Portland are taking advantage of some of the relaxation in laws and the lack of police presence or the belief that, um, you know, they'll maybe be arrested if they're caught, but then let out of jail. And like I mentioned, these cases are going on for so long and um, uh, a lot of them just get um, dismissed. Um, But what I hear from like crime data experts and historians is that we are more likely than not living through a pretty dire economic and social downturn in these quote unquote post pandemic days And like the roaring 20s, the cost of living is astronomical. Wages aren't high enough. People are apathetic. People are sick. And a lot of property of crime that I come across appears to be crimes of opportunity and desperation. And of course, that doesn't discount the extreme detrimental effect to the quality of life in this city, but it is a theory. (laughs) Yeah, and Katza, what do you you make of that? Portland police have said that they've had to prioritize specifically more violent crime over smaller incidents of property crime. And it's meant that it's taken longer to respond to certain incidents, or they Mm -hmm. haven't really been able to respond at all. And they're only referring the most serious crimes to the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office. So I think for a lot of folks in Portland, they feel that when they call the police, it's not an effective tool. And they're not even certain that the people who are accused of those crimes will face any punishment for doing them. So I think people in Portland, for some people in Portland, uh, feel that it's kind of futile complaining to calling 911 or complaining to police. Mm -hmm. um, And that's let people feel like they don't have recourse when something criminal happens to them. Absolutely. I I feel like that's why this is such a big story right now. Like obviously the human toll and the astounding like increase in gun violence in Portland is of great concern for the police bureau and for the, you know, community, but the majority of people in Portland right now don't necessarily know someone who's been victim of murder like it's becoming more and more common for these acts acts of violence to touch people's lives but overall if you 
talk to anyone in Portland right now out and about, you're much more likely to hear frustrations about things like car theft, catalytic converter theft, break-ins, burglaries, and of course, these commercial businesses being hit with, you know, burglaries and armed robberies. Yeah. Now you're more likely to know your favorite coffee shop has had its windows smashed in three times than, um, depending on where you live in the city, than to have felt the 90 plus homicides that have really disproportionately affected certain areas of the city in the last two years. Yeah. And people of color. Yeah. So Kata, let's go back to the salt and straw piece a bit there. Cause I feel like, you know, obviously the name is a name that people all around, maybe even the country, I guess, know. So it draws attention, but what is the central East sides, you know, both its property crime issue and the high prevalence of people who are unhoused, who are living in the area. What is the city planning for that area? And how do how does that those two factors, you know, people in their mind might think homelessness means um, property crime. Is that what the city is trying to address? In the, and is that a fair uh, way to look at the situation? Yeah, so after the co-owner of Salt and Straw, Kim Malik, said that she was considering moving the company's headquarters and central kitchen out of Southeast Portland because of uh, crime and fear for her employees' safety. Um, It sort of ignited this wave of other business owners in the central east side speaking out about their experiences in the neighborhood. And what a lot of them were saying is that their employees felt and feel nervous about going into work in the central east side because they've been held up at gunpoint or their cars have been repeatedly broken into mm-hmm. or in the case of salt and straw an rv burst into flames right outside of their building while employees were trapped inside and they were terrified um, which is what kim malik said and on tuesday mayor wheeler met with what's called the central east side industrial council and it's this coalition of business and neighborhood leaders and said I'm listening and I know you need things to change. And he said he was working with them on implementing what's called a 90 day reset plan in the area. And that plan is modeled after one that was implemented in Northwest Portland's Old Town District earlier this year. And really the main pillar of that plan was doing unprecedented levels of sweeps of homeless encampments in that area. So removing tents from sidewalks and streets and clearing encampments. And the strategy also focused on, you know, making sidewalks more accessible, cleaning up some litter and graffiti and increasing lighting in the area. And by the end of that three month plan in Old Town, Portland's police chief, Chuck Lavelle said, trespassing reports had decreased by over 90% and vandalism was down 13% compared to the previous 60 day period. So while the Central East Side hasn't finalized what their version of the 90-day reset plan would entail, it will probably use some of those same strategies used in Old Town, particularly the sweeps of encampments. Um, And there are folks who have been vocally very opposed to the sweeps in Old Town and now in the Central East Side because of how they can really traumatize and harm people who are unsheltered. And even though the city tried to offer people living in those encampments in Old Town spots at local shelters and free transportation to those shelters, only 18 people actually took those spots. And homelessness advocates have said that there's many reasons why people would be resistant to staying at a shelter, including that they've had 
traumatic experiences in those settings and they don't feel safe there. And part of that is that in these encampments, advocates have said there's community, that there are people, people who are housed aren't really aware of that community or don't really see that community. And those are friendships where people take care of others who are even more vulnerable than they are. And sweeps can really tear apart these communities and social structures and friendships and destabilize this ecosystem. So when encampments are swept, maybe the people who have the most resources or ability or stability and access move to another location. But advocates have said that the people who are often highest need, people who are experiencing triggered mental health issues or experiencing trauma, they're left behind without that support from their community, in addition to the fact that they no longer have tents or sleeping bags or blankets or coats and socks, and it's about to be winter, snow and cold weather and rain are ahead. Um, So someone I spoke to, Scott Kerman, who's the executive director of Lanche House in Old Town, which serves meals, says Mm -hmm. he's really hoping the city and these business districts like the Central Eastside Industrial Council, before they implement this 90-day reset plan, will work with organizations like Blanche House and Portland Rescue Mission and Street Roots and try to come up with solutions that cause the least amount of harm. And he also said, this is a really complex, complicated situation. And he can understand why people feel like sweeping homeless encampments is a more humane strategy than allowing people to sleep outside where it's very dangerous. But ultimately, in his experience, he said that sweeps do more harm than good. So what strategies can they collaborate on that will hopefully make these neighborhoods and environments safer and decrease the amount of property crime and crime in general without harming the Portlanders who are the most vulnerable, especially as we're going into winter. Yeah, it's been right around freezing this week and um, those temperatures are expected to drop. um, And that's scary times for people who are living outside. I would just add that the it's clear that the struggle of local leaders is balancing the interests of businesses who they want to stay in Portland for economic reasons and the like humanitarian crisis that we're seeing um, on the streets. So going back to the old town 90 day reset though, Kata, was that a successful enterprise? I mean, there are still multiple people who lost their lives right in the wake of that. Um, and those people were unsheltered people. Yes, the answer to that question really depends on who you ask. So the author of the original 90-day reset plan, Jessie Burke, she owns the Society Hotel downtown and is the chair of the Old Town Community Association. And she said, yeah, that things are better now. There is about 70 tents in Old Town compared to around 400 that there were before they implemented this plan. She said lighting has improved. There's a downtown clean and safe truck that goes through the neighborhood every day. And they say they often take, make three trips to the dump every day just with litter. And uh, graffiti is more cleaned up. So what she, the reason she said it was a success and she could call it a success was because it got the ball rolling. They actually got 
plans. They got the mayor's attention, the city's attention, and they started taking steps. And she said the the 90 days wasn't as important as the fact that they got the ball rolling on addressing the issue, um, the issues around public safety, cleanliness, and accessibility, and that they can always course correct. So if something, some part of their 90-day reset strategy isn't working, they can listen to community members, listen to the city, talk to each other, and adjust their strategy to better solve what's going on. So on the flip side, when you speak to advocates, they're saying, or advocates for the homeless community or Mm -hmm. people who are unhoused, they're saying, you're trying to solve property crime, cleanliness and accessibility, mostly by clearing out people who are unsheltered and shuffling them to a different neighborhood and destabilizing their lives and re-traumatizing people. And it doesn't solve the root issue that there's little access to behavioral health resources that a lot of folks living outside are really struggling with the accessibility and prevalence of drugs like fentanyl and there is not affordable housing for people and there's not enough workers social workers and other outreach workers to help people kind of case by case you know when i spoke to scott kerman from blanche house he said while he doesn't think sweeps of encampments are the best strategy for addressing crime and public safety, he is at least glad that he said that the city was in action mode, that it appears that the city is actually coming to the table and meeting with people who are neighborhood leaders, um, community leaders, and trying to come up with solutions versus um not listening at all so he's just hopeful that the mayor and other people within city government and even these business leaders will meet with people who work directly with the houseless community and work with houseless people themselves and listen to them and get their perspective on what would help because it's not a one-sided issue um in old town in the central east side or in portland at large yeah those are all different neighborhoods with different challenges, obviously. Um, I'm just curious, you know, obviously the, the people who reach out to news reporters, you know, aren't representative necessarily the broader population, but what, what are your email boxes, voicemail boxes look like? Are you hearing from people, everyday Portlanders or people who are concerned about all of these issues that we're talking about? I feel like there's not much to say on this for me. I, for me, other than yes, I do get, um, I do get emails on a lot of, um, you know, when a story will come out about these, you know, property crime data or um, specific incidents that we might highlight. Um, I will get several emails say of people saying that similar things have happened to them or that they want me to dig into, you know, why or who stole something or um, repeat uh, burglaries, for example. Um and just a lot of frustration. There's also a lot of racist uh, emails and like stereotypes about people making assumptions about what some of these um, suspects or defendants uh, look like. As a general assignment reporter, I cover a lot of topics, but nothing gets my inbox blowing up more than writing about 
property crime and homelessness. And the sentiment is overwhelmingly anger. And overall, I've received a lot of emails from readers who are venting their frustrations about crime and homelessness. And a common sentiment is saying, Portland is going down the drain or Portland is dying somehow. And a few people have voiced really intense criticism of what homeless advocates have said, saying that people who are unsheltered are all choosing to be addicted to drugs or that they're all criminals. And some people even encourage violence against people in that community. And I think that shows the level of anger that exists among some Portlanders toward people who are unsheltered. And it really makes me wonder how many people have ever actually spoken to someone experiencing homelessness or have tried imagining, even for a few minutes, what it would feel like to be living and sleeping outside without the protection of apartment walls or a home with a front door you can lock or heating, and whether people know how available and inexpensive hyper-addictive drugs like fentanyl are on the street and how for some people living outside, using drugs like that feels like one of the only ways they can cope with how hard it is to live outside and unsheltered. And based only on the kind of anger I'm seeing in my inbox from readers, the people that are writing to me see this as a very, very black and white issue. But what I've found, the more you learn about houselessness, the more you see how complex and multi-layered the situation is. And the people who work directly with people who are unhoused will say that too, that it's such a complicated, complex situation. It's not black and white at all. And I think a lot of the readers that write to me are people who are just seeing it as something that can be fixed with one big sledgehammer. Yeah, not to mention the, you know, complete deficit in, uh, you know, services for addiction and, you know, prevention and recovery facilities, detox. Um, We've reported on that extensively. Yeah, to further complicate things, you go back to pre-pandemic, our departed former colleague, Rebecca Wollington, had some amazing reporting that kind of illustrated, you know, even back before the pandemic and before the rise in homicides and before a lot of these issues we're talking about now, you know, the majority of people arrested in Portland were people experiencing homelessness. So this is a, a very complicated and uh, longstanding thing that the city's grappling with. Um, is Portland an outlier? I know, obviously, we know that Portland is one of several cities that's seeing a rise in violent crime. It's not by no means is it, um, you know, violent crime and specifically homicides, but uh that's by no means a national, you know, every city, but do, what do we know about property crime, if anything? Um, is this kind of a national story? I think it is. I think it varies per uh, city and state. Um, the FBI releases their report every year. And um, so we do have some, you know, varying data from 2019 through 2021 that, you know, suggests rises and falls, but still relatively high um, property crime across the board. Yeah. And data shows for homelessness, that's up nationwide and has been increasing since 2019. So 
Oregon is not the only state to be seeing an increase in the size of the houseless population, but also the rates of use of fentanyl, also sometimes called blues, has skyrocketed in the U.S. and represents now more than half of overdose deaths nationwide. So other major cities in the U.S. are seeing their own dual crises of drugs and houselessness, and Portland is certainly not alone, but I think for a lot of people, it's the first time they're experiencing it so close to their own backyards or in their neighborhoods. And since they're not going to other cities, traveling to other cities and seeing it there, they're just not aware of how much it is a national issue. Well, anything else that I should have asked you or do you think is important? I mean, obviously, people can understand the complexity of it. But if you have a gun pointed at your face and you're trying to go to work, you might feel a different way, right? Absolutely. People have every re- people have every right to feel frustrated and and unsafe and like you know question. I hear a lot of questions about: Is this a place I want to own a home? Is this a place I want to raise kids? Um, because of these situations, right? I think what Kim Malik said. Um, she said that when she spoke to city commissioners after uh, the incident of the RV exploding outside of Saltonstraw, she said, "Could I ask someone? Would you send your child to work here?" in this neighborhood. I don't feel confident saying that um, or recommending that. And she got really emotional when she was talking about it. And I think that just illustrates that there are people who are feeling in like they are experiencing levels of danger every day in Portland. And it's people from like a diverse range of communities. Um, that includes business owners and employees and the unhoused, and people who are just living their everyday lives in neighborhoods throughout Portland. Um, And that the fact that so many different communities are experiencing those dangers um, just shows how complex the situation really is, um, and how kind of multifaceted a strategy to address it would have to be. Well, thank you both for all of your stellar reporting on this and for taking time to talk to me about it. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with you, Oregonian. I shared links to some of Kata and Savannah's recent stories in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.